This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. What to do about the military's Red Hill Underground bulk fuel storage facility on Capitol Hill yesterday? Members of the House Subcommittee on Readiness grilled the Navy about the release of thousands of gallons of fuel that made its way into the drinking water of thousands of families living in military housing and possibly in nearby communities on the military's water system. The issue got the attention of Task and Purpose, an online media outlet focused on military issues. It was started eight years ago by veterans of the armed forces. We talked to reporter Haley Britsky, who has written stories about the plight of the displaced Honolulu families and the response to the water crisis. So Task and Purpose is an online news site covering really just everything about the military, whether that military culture, you know, more fun things like, you know, movies that are portraying military life, um, but then also important issues that, you know, are impacting service members every day and their families. So whether that is uniform changes or deployments or like this issue in Hawaii, you know, a a more widespread crisis that's impacting a lot of people at one time. We kind of just try to be a voice for the uh, military families and for service members um, who otherwise may not be able to be heard about those kind of issues. Yeah. And, you know, we've been watching this unfold and it has unfolded very quickly. It's really snowballed, you know, just from the first hints that we had when families were starting to call about the the smell of fuel in the air, you know, back in November. And then a couple weeks later, then it was fuel in the tap water. And at the time, you know, the military, the Navy anyway, was saying, well, you know, we don't have evidence yet that there's something in the water. And yet the families were saying, no, (laughs) we don't think this is safe to drink. Yeah, and I spoke with some families and some folks down there who were impacted, and I think that's such an important point that you made about, you know, sort of that lag, what families were saying, you know, we're seeing these problems, and the Navy was kind of a little bit behind, saying, well, our tests are showing that the water is safe, and that everything is okay. And then I think that really set the Navy back as far as, you know, having the trust of the communities and the, the residents on their base, which Navy officials sort of addressed for Congress, uh, the importance of kind of rebuilding that trust and allowing residents to regain confidence that those officials are, you know, taking care of them and um, providing the most accurate information. But it has definitely been a a trying and stressful time for for people down there. People are impacted who, you know, can't live in their homes, who don't feel safe living in their homes. It's been a very long few weeks for them, I have no doubt. Yeah, and we have talked to uh, families, you know, who had to move into the hotels in Waikiki, and they were worried about catching COVID because of the crowds, and, and yet, you know, wanting to have access to clean, safe water. And, and so, yeah, it has been a real challenge for many of those families who, who may not be able to get really back in their homes with clean drinking water until February. The Navy has indicated that it is going to follow the governor's order to start the defueling process. And, and, uh, you know, that's that's kind of a biggie this week. That's right. Yeah, that was something that um, I know environmental groups in Hawaii and even outside of Hawaii have been talking about for a long time. And and one of the questions that kept coming up at this hearing was, you know, the the, the Navy was saying that they think the reason behind this fuel leak um, in November, the most recent one, because of an operator error. And so a lot of several of the lawmakers were saying, well, if it's an operator error, how is defueling um, going to to address that? But I think for a lot of groups who have been watching this, we know that there there's a history of these kind of fuel leaks. You know, there's one that was, there was one last May that the Navy is now saying they're going to be investigating to see if that's somehow related to this most recent leak. So this is not the first time this has happened. And so for a lot of people who've been watching this closely, the, the defueling process is incredibly important, um, an incredibly important step to see the Navy take, which, um, as you just said, they've indicated, you know, they are going to, to follow through on that order and, and start that process. And the Navy, you know, has maintained that the uh, the the fuel tank facility, you know, is sound and and safe. But the issue of the pipelines, I think, is is also an, uh, another matter. You know, if they are going to be defueling, you know, making sure that those lines can handle uh, whatever it takes to to uh, just defuel that whole facility because it is massive. And I think the most important thing, you know, for people, for the Navy to keep in mind going forward 
is, um, like I said earlier, there is this sort of lack of trust there. And so they're going to have to really over-communicate um, and be very transparent with that process, what they're doing, what they're expecting, any challenges that they have, uh, for people to really feel confident that that's going to fix things. And, you know, eventually, hopefully, that when that water is safe again, uh, we, of course, want families to feel confident that the water in their homes is clean and that they can bathe their children in it. And so, um, you know, as we maybe go to this goes through this process, they really need to be keeping that in mind and being as open with the communication with their baby families as possible and with the surrounding communities. And for all those customers that are on the military's water system, you know, whether it's uh, Army personnel, Coast Guard, Air Force, Navy, uh, and even civilians, you did write up a, a story about how the Army was kind of showing up the, the Navy on its response. It really has been so interesting seeing the difference in, in responses from, you know, soldiers and their families versus uh, sailors and, and Navy personnel and, um, and people kind of living on under that uh, command. And, you know, we saw they had, they had multiple town halls and the, you know, the Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam did, various Navy officials, some Air Force officials and, and the Army was having their own town halls. And just seeing the response, even just in the comments on those town halls on Facebook were night and day so different and how people were responding to the Army, thanking them, you know, saying, you know, we, we trust what you're saying. Thank you for going out of your way. Thank you for taking care of us. And you look at the Navy's town halls and sort of the way people were responding there. I mean, people were saying, you know, where is the Army? Can't the Army come in here and, and kind of take control of this? Like, you're letting us down. And, and it really was just such a stark difference. And we also saw, you know, some acknowledgement of that within the Army. For that report that you mentioned, I obtained uh, some internal emails from an Army Command Chief of Staff, who was just sort of informing his own team of how things were going. And he mentioned several times, you know, the Navy is saying the water is safe, but that is not our position. The Army's position is that it's not. And so for days after those first reports started coming in um, in late November, there was just this complete break in messaging between the two services that I think made it very confusing for people. And again, just sort of undermined that trust in Navy officials moving forward. We know that there is some, you know, sense of competition between the the various military branches. But yeah, I think in this case, a lot of folks were saluting the Army uh, just for their efforts, uh, you know, and how they move quickly and, and handle the situation. Yeah, I mean, I think moving forward, the, the biggest thing to keep an eye on is um, certainly this investigation that we know is coming out, um, I believe the officials said coming out uh, this week. So I'll certainly be looking forward to seeing that and seeing sort of what they found as far as the connection between this most recent leak and um, what we saw in May. Uh, this is certainly far from the last we're going to hear about this. Um, I'm Congress, you know, the, the lawmakers on the House Armed Services Readiness Subcommittee who were speaking with Navy officials made it very clear that they were taking this incredibly seriously. This was a readiness issue for the military. This was not something that they were going to let go of. And so I would not be surprised if we see a few more hearings like that, asking for updates down the line. And, you know, it'll just be a matter of time, I think, of seeing what the Navy is able to do, what they communicate, if they're proactive about that, or if Congress sort of has to go after them and get those answers themselves. That was Haley Britsky, reporter for the online military-focused news outlet, Task and Purpose. Hawaii lawmakers may be able to look forward to more money in our state coffers than originally thought. So how might they spend it? Well, that's the subject of today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beats education reporter Suvan Lee is on the line today. Good morning, Suvan. Hi, Catherine. So, yeah, we heard the Council of Revenues, um, you know, raise their forecast that we might have more money to play with. So people are talking maybe raises might be in line for teachers. Uh, absolutely. That is a big, big theme coming into the session, which starts a week from today. And, and certainly uh, people are hoping that this will be the year in which uh, particularly veteran teachers in the DOE will be um, will have their pay adjusted to account for their years of experience. So there's these two education spending bills that um, will be introduced. And one of them deals with this issue called compression, in which these long-serving DOE teachers um, are not paid based on their years of 
experience, but rather according to a salary scale where these steps are pre-negotiated. So, you know, it's it's not actually adequately compensating them, unlike other school districts, which do account for years of service. And another bill which proposes to uh, remove the salary ca- uh, salary um, caps for certain levels of advancing so that it better incentivizes teachers to accrue more professional development. And so how many teachers are we talking about that could be in line for a raise, you think? So according to a copy of uh, one of these bills that uh, Representative Janae Capella plans to introduce, um, estimated 8,700 teachers in Hawaii are underpaid based on their years of experience. And the estimate that they came up with is that this is um, um, shorting them, shorting them ranging from $7,000 to $26,000. So no, no small sum there. Um, and of course, you know, Hawaii sees a, a lot of uh, teacher vacancies, about close to 1,000 every year. So this is going to be a big um, issue coming up. And we saw this week with uh, the uh, students and the teachers returning back to the classroom, uh, you know, everybody's nervous about uh, the spread of the virus and, you know, the concern about remote learning. Uh, and, and really, the, the this pandemic has put the spotlight on education. Yeah, I, I think there's no doubt about that, um, especially now with the return of students after the winter break. Um, and I mean, even from the beginning of the pandemic, we've seen how stressful it's been to um, just maintain these cohesive learning environments. And now that everyone's back in school with virus cases just surging, um, I, I think I think no one would argue that teachers um, are playing a crucial role right now in in um, serving serving students and serving their communities. And and it's really been a longstanding issue here in Hawaii as far as Hawaii teacher pay. Um, a first-year certified teacher starts out at around 50 grand a year. And while that's not the lowest base pay in the country, when you adjust for Hawaii's high cost of living, uh, Hawaii teacher pay falls right down to the bottom. So I think um, a lot of people are are concerned that, you know, the the high cost of living here just, you know, the teacher salary pay can't um, match that high cost of living. And that's why a lot of teachers leave. Uh, Less than half, um, less than 50% of teachers reach the five-year mark, in fact. So that's why education advocates say it's so important to retain these experienced veteran teachers with higher pay. And, you know, we've heard the teachers union, the Hawaii State Teachers Association, you know, just, um, I don't know, how would you characterize it? I mean, they, they've been beating the drum for years about, you know, the pay for teachers. I mean, we saw what happened with the strike, you know, years ago, and that was that was awful uh, for, for our community. So, yeah, I mean, the, the teachers union has been has been, you know, beating the drum and uh, the lawmakers tried to actually give the teachers bonuses. Right. And that was vetoed by the governor. Yeah. Yeah, last year, I think you're referring to the the $2,200 one-time bonuses to all public school teachers through federal COVID aid. Of course, Governor Ige vetoed that because he he claimed that the lawmakers didn't have the authority to direct the federal or that the education um, parameters didn't allow for that here. but but you're right. The HSTA actually brought up this proposal as far as teacher compression pay back in January 2020. Now, those efforts stalled because, of course, the pandemic hit several months later. Um, but we're seeing a renewal of that very proposal this year. And lawmakers themselves have said they support this. So I think with that backing, this could be a banner year for potentially raising veteran teacher pay. Right. And I, I know you, you reached out to the... Uh uh, House Finance Chair Sylvia Luke, and she's in agreement that a raise might happen this year. She said she supports it, so yes. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll wait and see. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Subhan. You bet. Thank you. Uh, that was education reporter Subhan Lee with today's reality check. Uh, you can find her stories on this issue. Visit civilbeat.org. <laughs> This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. 
show will be bringing you a story about a new local theater production based on the life and works of poet Paul Dunbar. For now, we're looking back at the work of a 19th century Hawaiian poet and songwriter in today's Backyard Quiz. She was the author of these lines, May gentle peace forever reign o'er these fair islands of the main, Hawaii's peaks to Niihau strand, the peace of God over all the land. These were the lyrics to the song He Mele Lahui Hawaii, written in Hawaiian and translated by H.L. Sheldon in 1867. It is believed to be the first of its author's published songs. It was also the first anthem of the kingdom, written at the request of Kamehameha V. A newspaper at the time said of the poet, this young ali'i has thus received the fruits of her labors, and we hope there will be more of her compositions hereafter. There soon were. And so for today's Backyard Quiz, we are looking for the name of this prolific songwriter. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. feel you only just got comfortable saying remdesivir and ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. But guess what? There's another group of drugs to get to know when it comes to Omicron and COVID-19. To help us navigate what they are, we spoke with Kaiser Permanente's infectious disease specialist, Dr. Tarkin Collis. He walks us through four drugs. We start with Paxlovid. It's a drug made by the Pfizer, Pfizer Corporation. It's for folks 12 years and up who have early COVID, so, so really less than five days, five days or less of symptoms. It's a five-day treatment course, so it's three pills twice a day in most folks for, for, um, for five days. We do use lower doses in people whose kidney function isn't optimal. And it's actually a mixture of, of two drugs um, in one. One is a uh, what we call a protease inhibitor, which is a class of drugs really developed during the HIV era, and they inhibit the enzyme in, in viruses called protease. It's, it's uh, the target in SARS-CoV-2 is what they call the main protease, and those are enzymes that the virus uses to make uh, new viruses. And so um, it inhibits the virus from, from replicating, basically. Um, the second drug that's a part of Paxlovid is also a protease inhibitor called ritonavir, but it's really used there not so much as an antiviral against SARS-CoV-2, but as a, as a way to boost the blood levels of the active um, protease inhibitor that, that's the main, the main player in Paxlovid. The data on Paxlovid are pretty impressive. Um, in its clinical trial, it showed about a an 88 to 89% um, decrease in hospitalization or death if used in that population. So someone with early infection uh, was studied primarily in patients who have some risk for poor outcomes from COVID. It also drops the viral load about tenfold. So we don't have data yet on whether it decreases transmission to other um, folks, but it's anticipated that it might do that, which would be great. The main problem with the drug Paxlovid is that it does have a lot of drug interactions. So depending on other medications that people are taking, including some forms of contraception, that can be a challenge with getting this med right and making it safe for folks. And is it something that then you treat someone uh, that isn't in, let's say, you know, severe distress, that it, it's just early on to kind of prevent things from escalating? Yeah. So in general, 
the treatments for COVID are, are sort of divided into um, folks who have very early infection when the virus is really active and there are antivirals and monoclonals um, developed to sort of help keep the virus from, from getting too much of a foothold. And then for people who present later on, typically in their second week of symptoms, um, a lot of the issues actually aren't driven as much by the virus itself, we think, so much as sort of an, an, an exuberant, unhelpful immune response. And a lot of our therapies for the inpatients, for example, who come in short of breath and with low oxygen, the therapies we're talking about today would likely not help them. And we focus a lot on trying to modulate their immune response and, and calm things down with um, steroids and, and interleukin inhibitors. Well, what can you tell us about the availability of Paxlovid in here in the islands? Yeah, it's extremely limited, and it's extremely limited throughout the United States. Paxlovid takes a long time to make. It takes about somewhere between five and eight months to make a batch of Paxlovid from scratch, which is pretty impressive. So Pfizer is distributing it as quickly as it can, and it's trying to ramp up the production um, of the drug, including in places like Germany and Ireland. But but the amounts that we're getting, you know, for example, Kaiser got 24 doses, uh, I mean, well, 24 courses, enough to treat 24 patients in the first week that we received it, and that's not much. And that's basically the, the distribution of all of these drugs is really being determined by the Healthcare Association of Hawaii with input from the Department of Health and, and, and other stakeholders. And they basically divide them up between, in on Oahu at least, first of all, the federal government determines how much each state gets, and then the HAH helps distribute that to different islands. And then within the island, we get a certain allotment at Kaiser, Queens, Straub, and federally qualified health centers of different types get differing amounts, and we kind of have to make do with that with that much for the week until we get resupplied. Other states are going about this somewhat differently. Some states are getting them distributed directly to major pharmacy chains, and then doctors have to call around to see what's available. But here, it's distributed really differentially by island and within this island to the big, the big hospitals and dispense out of their pharmacies primarily. And then what else has so, been uh, found to be uh, helpful? Yeah, so that's Paxlovid, great drug and uh, nice to have an oral option available, although um, we'd love it if we had more of it. There's another drug called Citrovimab, which is a monoclonal antibody so it's an IV therapy, also used for early COVID treatment. Again, typically employed within five to 10 days of symptom onset. It is, you know, as opposed to the older um, monoclonals that we were using, drugs like Regeneron, be very active against Omicron variant. It was actually developed based on antibodies recovered from a patient in 2003 who had the original SARS, SARS-1. And so it's, uh, it's directed against part of the spike protein that is uh, preserved in different types of coronaviruses, including this Omicron variant. So we, we think it will be very helpful. It's also for ages 12 and up. It's also primarily used for folks with high risk for poor outcomes in COVID, from COVID rather. And, and it's a one-time drug, so it has to be administered typically in, in either an ER setting or an outpatient infusion center. Their clinical trial was also very impressive, showed about a I think a 79% decrease in hospitalization and death if given to that patient population. And again, the trick with this one is as opposed to Paxlovid, which you can pick up and take at home as a pill, this one has to be administered um, pretty carefully. Is this the one that also comes in a series of shots? Nope. This one is given as a one-time IV infusion. It's not yet studied as an intramuscular injection. And then what about the monoclonal antibodies that may have been successful with Delta, but maybe not so much with Omicron? Yeah, so there were several of those that were in broad use throughout the U.S., Regeneron and BAM-EDI, which is short for, for Eli Lilly's um, long-named drug. And both of those were, you know, were felt to be quite active against Delta and prior variants, but weren't shown, at least in, in vitro, to be very active against Omicron. And so our institution stopped using them about, about a week and a half ago when it became clear that virtually all of the cases of infection in the state were Omicron, and now there were virtually 100% Omicron. Um, I'm not aware of, of anyone on Oahu, at least, who's still using Regeneron or, or older monoclonal antibodies, because we, we don't think that they're likely to be effective in helping folks. As far as in the supplies of the other monoclonal antibodies that are successful, I mean, do we have a sufficient supply, or is that also... <laughs> it's yeah. also extremely limited. Okay. 
we had in the 20s enough for about 24 people with that drug also in the first week. And I think we'll be getting another supply of about 24 for this coming week. And that's typical for the big institutions. I think Queens and Strawberry each getting something very similar to that. So um, again, when you're talking about, you know, several thousand people in Hawaii being diagnosed a day with active infection and Kaiser and, and the other the other big institutions only have enough for low double digits. It's you know, that's the situation we're in. But until these are really ramped up in their production, we'll just have to be very selective. And I think all of the institutions that are doing this unfortunately are having to choose very carefully which patients they're treating so that we get the most you know, we can do the most good with them. And they're typically patients who are either highly immunocompromised or elderly and unvaccinated. Those are the people that are getting priority for these drugs right now. And, you know, because we've been hearing lots about the, you know, standards of care during this crisis, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, we've seen a couple of hospitals, you know, move into this emergency mode, you know, does does that then determine, you know, who gets these drugs? Well, that's a great question. I think that Paxlovid, which is an oral pill, you know, has to be dispensed by a pharmacist, but otherwise doesn't take a lot of healthcare resources. Citrovimab is an IV therapy, and that requires an infusion center, and that requires nurses and, and a doc nearby. And a lot of those things are being heavily impacted with the number of staff who are either um, quarantined or isolating with infection. And so um, we're certainly administering Citrovimab aggressively here and, and have been doing so since last week, and we've dedicated a lot of resources to doing that to help people out. But not every place is able to do that, and that's going to be a real issue, I think, going forward. So this, like many other forms of treatment for COVID and not COVID are all being impacted by the extent to which our hospitals are really strapped by patient volumes and by, you know, sick staff. It's a really, yeah. it's a really difficult time. Yeah. I mean, you know, you hear about the, the rationing, right? I mean, we were so worried at the beginning about not having enough N95 masks for our healthcare workers. And, you know, now, you know, we've come down to all these different drugs, but we just don't have the supply for everybody. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the good news, I guess, is that we do, we, you know, we're certainly not short on protective supplies, I think, both for the public, actually, and as well as for um, for healthcare workers. And this is more akin to, I think, when vaccines were first available. There, you know, it just takes a while to ramp up the industrial might to really produce drugs and vaccines and the quantities you want them. And it always starts out with a bit of a slow trickle. And during that time, if you remember almost a year ago, when vaccines first came out, you know, it was a similar situation of trying to figure out who is at most risk, who could benefit most and who should get first priority. And it's always painful as a doc to have to think that stuff through. You want to be able to help everyone. But the reality is you have to do the most with with what you have until you have a lot more of it. And so that's the situation we're in. I'm actually very grateful that we have some new therapies to offer, even though we don't have near as much as any of us would like yet. And what else is uh, available? Yeah, so there's another drug that, that folks are asking about a lot called Evusheld, which is another monoclonal antibody, but it's very different than Citrovimab in, its, in, in what it's designed for. Evusheld is, is a combination of, of two monoclonal antibodies. It's made by AstraZeneca, and it's, um, it's intended as a pre-exposure prophylaxis. So it's not for treatment of early infection like citrovimab or Paxlovid. It's actually designed um, as an adjunct to vaccination in people who are very immunocompromised, have very weak systems, have already been vaccinated, but who are not ex- not anticipated to have as good a response to vaccines as folks who have an intact immune system. And so Evusheld is designed to be given as an injection that will last about six months to help protect against catching COVID in the first place. So it's a really passive form of vaccination meant to augment uh, real vaccination. It's not meant as a replacement for vaccination. So our institution and a lot of other institutions are choosing those folks who are um, most likely to not have responded to vaccination, which are typically patients on forms of therapy that really um, deplete their B cells, a, a big part of their immune system, drugs like rituxan or ibrutinib, um, B cell depleting therapies. There are folks in those situations, um, often, you know, they're, they're cancer patients or they have rheumatologic disorders, and we're giving them Evusheld, Evusheld rather, as a protective mechanism um, after vaccination to help give them an additional boost. And what about uh, Merck's Molnupiravir? Sure. That? What is we that? Can, we can talk about that as well. So, so Molnupiravir is Merck's oral 
antiviral, so it's more like Paxlovid, the first drug we talked about, than, than any of the other drugs we've talked about to this point. It's a polymerase inhibitor as opposed to a protease inhibitor, so it chases after a different viral enzyme. It's also a five-day course of pills. It's, uh, it's actually four pills twice a day, so it's quite a few pills. It has some, some problems with it as a drug, and, and honestly, it's deprioritized as a treatment in current guidelines from the, from the National Institutes of Health because of, of two real issues. One is its um, efficacy in terms of preventing uh, severe outcomes, including hospitalization and death, is much lower than Paxlovid. It's felt to offer only about a 30% protection against hospitalization and, and death, as opposed to nearly 90% with Paxlovid. So it's less potent in terms of helping you. And then there are safety concerns with this drug that are, you know, that make it difficult mm. um, to figure out risk and benefit in, in many patients, as opposed to Paxlovid, which is for 12 and up. Molnupiravir is only indicated for those 18 and up who have early COVID, but it has concerns with potential mutagenesis, which is a fancy way of saying birth defects or cancer are mm. both theoretical concerns. It's contraindicated in pregnancy. We're not supposed to give it to lactating women. You have to give some very clear instructions around birth control after using it. And, and there is some concern in the scientific community that this drug, which is actually designed to induce what we call error catastrophe, so fatal replication in viruses by causing too much mutation in the viral replication process, there's a theoretical concern it could even cause a spinoff of new variants, which is, again, mm. completely theoretical. Right. But, it's, but it's enough of a concern that it has been de-emphasized in its use, and it's really only felt to be appropriate when the other drugs that we've talked about, Paxlovid, Citrovimab, and even outpatient remdesivir, all of those would be considered first-line therapies and, and molnupiravir down the road. So okay. we at Kaiser are certainly not using this drug mm-hmm. until we're completely out of Paxlovid and Citrofimab. And even then, we would be very careful about its use and really have to think about risk and benefit because it offers less benefit and, right. and seemingly a lot more risk. That was Dr. Tarquin Collis, uh, Chief of Infectious Disease at Kaiser Permanente. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to offering the community inspiration and learning through art and education. Learn more about membership programs at honolulumuseum.org slash join dash give. I'm Bert Lam. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, as the pandemic continues, we look at the evolving workplace and the growing demand for IT skills. We'll learn about an IT workforce development survey and find out what businesses see as high-growth areas. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, a full-service wealth management team rooted in Hawaii, committed to a customized, integrated approach with a global outlook. TheRicePartnership.com have got a ruby red gem of a bird for you today, the Northern Cardinal. This songbird has been calling Hawaii home since the early 20th century, so you probably are you're, you're familiar with its call. Thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, we have got your Manu Minute. Here is Professor Patrick Hart from the University of Hawaii at Hilo. Northern Cardinals are among the most common and recognizable birds in towns, backyards, and even some forests across Hawaii. Introduced to Hawaii in 1929, they're also one of the most abundant birds in North America, though they still don't occur naturally in most of the western states. About nine inches long from the tip of their bill to the end of their tail, males are a vivid red color with a red crest, a black mask and chin, and a large bright orange bill. 
All of these colors are obtained from eating carotenoid pigments in their food. The females also have the bright orange bill, but otherwise are mostly brown, with a bit of red on their wings, tail, and crest. Juveniles can sometimes be mistaken for females, however their gray-black bills don't turn orange until they're about three months old. Males advertise their territorial boundaries and try to impress females with a large variety of songs throughout the year. Most of us in Hawaii have heard these songs, even though we might not realize it was northern cardinals that were making them. See if you can recognize any of these common northern cardinal songs. Also known in Hawaiian as Manu Ula Ula, or Redbird, northern cardinals use their large nutcracker-like bills to open large seeds and fruits and to consume a variety of insects. They're among the few non-native birds that can commonly occur in our native forests and are even common in our low elevation forests where there's too much mosquito-transmitted avian malaria for the native birds to survive. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to protecting endangered birds and plants on Hawaii Island. More about helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. backyard quiz we asked what hawaiian poet and songwriter wrote the lyrics to Hemele lahui hawaii the first official anthem of the hawaiian kingdom the author was born in 1838 on oahu and at the age of four began her education at the chief's children's school according to her memoir hawaii's story by hawaii's queen she sang alto and was a skilled musician capable of playing guitar piano ukulele and zither in her book she wrote to compose was as natural to me as to breathe, and this gift of nature, never having been suffered to fall into disuse, remains a source of the greatest consolation to this day. She went on to become one of the kingdom's most prolific and gifted songwriters. She's the author of what some consider the greatest song in Hawaiian music history, Aloha Oi. A compilation of her works, The Queen's Songbook, was published in 1999. And by now, you probably know, we're talking about Lydia Kamakaha Dominus, better known to us as Queen Liliu Okalani, the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. And congrats. Our winner today is Cynthia Morris of Hilo. You got it right. If you have an idea for a backyard quiz, write to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Hawaiian Airlines with a commitment to helping guests travel Pono to protect the islands and preserve the culture, natural resources, and communities. More information at hawaiianairlines.com slash travelpono. It happens to the best of us. The week gets away from you and you're left feeling out of the loop. Let HPR keep you connected and informed with the Island Insider Newsletter. It's a quick roundup of local news stories from our award-winning team delivered to your inbox every Friday morning. Stay on top of this week's news in one handy email. Sign up is easy and free at hawaiipublicradio.org slash newsletter. If there's someone you might want to learn more about this year, it is poet and author Paul Lawrence Dunbar. He lived around the time of the Wright brothers. He was, in fact, their classmate, and he would go on to start a newspaper with them. But Dunbar was the only African-American in his high school. Born in Ohio, he was a prolific writer and left a body of work of poems and short stories and plays that have inspired so many. It was he who brought the African-American experience to the nation with dialect intact, celebrated author and uh, civil rights activist and poet laureate Maya Angelou was one of those who helped to shine the light on Dunbar's body of work. Does this sound familiar? Sympathy by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. 
I know what the caged bird feels, alas, when the sun is bright on the upland slopes, when the wind stirs soft through the springing grass, and the river flows like a stream of glass, when the first bird sings and the first bud opes, and the faint perfume from his chalice steals, I know what the caged bird feels. I know why the caged bird beats his wings, till its blood is red on the cruel bars, where he must fly back to his perch and cling, when he fain would be on the bow a swing, and the pain still throbs in the old, old scars, and they pulse again with a keener sting. I know why he beats his wing. I know why the caged bird sings, ah me, when his wing is bruised and his bosom sore, when he beats his bars and he would be free. It is not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core, but a plea that upward to heaven he flings. I know why the caged bird sings. That was a poem, Sympathy, written by Dunbar. But Angelou gave his work more attention decades later by sharing it with a new audience. Dunbar's life and work will be featured in an upcoming local production at TAG, the Actors Group. We talk with producer Derek Brown and researcher Larry Bartley about the power of the caged bird and Angelou's connection to Dunbar's work. She named her, I think, 1968 autobiography, that title. And also she's performed it numerous times, the poem Sympathy. And at each time, she credits Dunbar. So that kind of woke us up about, uh, you know, the, the importance and the gravity of Dunbar. And Derek, jump in here. I mean, what does Paul Lawrence Dunbar mean to the African-American community? A couple of things. I have to say we hold him up because he is was such a prolific writer and poet. The accomplishments that he made during the time that he made them is also part of the story. Maya Angelou's, as Larry said, the name of her autobiography was When the Caged Bird Sings, and she came along during a hard time. I believe it was after Reconstruction. And she always talked about her, well, there was one particular story. Her grandmother had made her a dress, and, and the dress was so beautiful that she thought she would put it on and she would be treated as a beautiful white child, and she was supposed to recite an actual poem at church. And she got so rattled that she actually uh, urinated on herself and ran from the church but the cage bird sings talks about i mean is pretty much her entire life i mean dealing with rape you know uh, she went to live with family members and she was raped you know there there is a lot of things especially it was very hard for the women during this time but what he means to us is just i hate to people think of people as great black poets or great black authors i, I prefer um, to just think of them as great authors we, there, I, I see no no need to categorize him although his work is special in the fact that it um, takes a lot of our, we'll call it, the, the best way I can relate this to people who might be li- listening is the way Pigeon is to uh, Hawaii. Because our speech was very dialectic at the time. Just different ways of saying words, different words that they actually made. And to read it is a hard read, but you can understand it if you're from and many if you're from the south it's probably easier to understand the language well it's very melodic actually uh, and so myself trying to read the dialect poems once you understood what the words mean and how they were pronounced it became almost a song and even the, right. somebody who can't read poetry like myself was able to to get through it and make it sound good because it wasn't like most plain english poetry where it just rhymes and you know there's not a lot of not a lot of cadence and rhythm to it. Dunbar's dialectic poems, there is. So they're easy to read, actually, once you learn the meaning of the words. Well, and, you know, he, he was a wordsmith. I mean, the fact that that the words that he chose and how he put the poems together <clears throat> really conveyed the depth of an experience. You know, when you think of the caged bird and you, you're just... <sighs> so, right. so talk about putting this story together in this play. Well, I, I stumbled across it reading, doing research on another play. I, I stumbled across the name, bought a couple of books, and quickly realized how ignorant everybody is in Hawaii about Paul Dunbar. Nobody I talked to had ever heard of him. And then I talked to some African-American friends, and they had mostly heard of him, but some knew a lot, others didn't know much, but at least they all heard about him. On the mainland, he's quite well known. 
There are over uh, 41 school, public schools named after Dunbar. And his, his home is a, in Dayton, Ohio, is a national monument now and so forth. So he's pretty well known on the mainland, actually. And certainly in Ohio, where he's from. Right. Like, like Larry was saying, the street, you know, he has a, a, there's many things that are named after him. And I, I believe they even have a, a, a day where they celebrate and have a parade and so on and so forth. Yeah. Well, now, this play is uh, going to uh, open this month, but it's going to straddle February, which happens to be Black History Month. starts the 21st. It's going to run Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for, I think, three or four weekends up till February 6th. And um, I guess guess we also have to add that uh, you have to be, uh, I believe vaccinated, wear a mask, and what else is there, Larry? I mean, I oh, yeah, there'll be socially distanced seating. I mean, groups can, yeah. that come in together can sit together, but there will be spacing between groups and individuals who aren't together. And also, temperatures will be taken, and vaccination or 48-hour test results will have to be shown to, to enter the theater. I just wanted to mention that because it's very right. important, seeing as I'm, today's my first day off of quarantine. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> and then for the folks who can't uh, maybe attend, will there be anything virtual at all? I'm not sure yet. We'll have that on our website. The website is taghawaii.net. That's T-A-G-H-A-W-A-I-I dot net. So people can go there and check and see. And if there is a video link, um, we do plan the video, but I can't say when that will be up. It won't, it won't be up. It won't be up during the performances, but perhaps later. You know, this thing was put together pretty quickly over the last month. Well, that that was my my yeah. next question, and I don't I don't know who wants to take that because with COVID, there have been right. so many challenges with this pandemic, particularly with theater productions. And so, you know, how, how is it that uh, this yeah. came to be? Um, yeah, I first brought this up to the board in March of this of uh, 2021, and they said that's a great idea. We're, we're, you know, but we can't work it in for the next two years because our schedule's already set. And then about a month ago, boom, the production we had scheduled for January fell through because of COVID. Uh, people couldn't get it together, and I, I don't know all those details. So we decided to do Dunbar on the spur of the moment, and we've put literally hundreds of hours into it since then. So, Derek, talk about that. I mean, how challenging was that to put a cast together? Well, it still is challenging. I have a, um, most of the work that I've done at TAG, of course, it has been August Wilson. So when you get a group of African-American actors in any capacity in Hawaii, you try and keep in touch with them and stick with them because it's very hard to find African-American men, especially to do to act. So it's and, and to answer your question, it's still challenging because the production, as we were talking about, is in actually in, two, in a couple of weeks. And we, um, you know, poetry is, is something that it's hard to, it's, it's not like acting for me, especially with this work. It's something that you have to feel. And so I need all of the actors to actually, we have to sit down and have dialogue and talk about what's happening in, in, in different works. Um, he has things that are enlightening, there's things that are happy, there's things that are sad. And it's my wish that the actors, um, it's all about energy conveyance with this particular work. If you're doing, you know, we, we want people to, to, to feel those beautiful words as much as possible. And and so that's where we're at right now as, as far as the process is going. Memorization, which hopefully will help with the ability of the actors to do that energy uh, conveyance. It's much easier once you memorize something and then you can work with the words and you can start to feel the words and you can, you know, actually give it to the audience. And that's where we're at right now. So in answer to your question, it's still a challenge. I guess it's no no different from any play. You know, you, as it gets down to the wire, we're as directors and we're nervous, thinking that oh, this person's not ready, that's not ready. And then through the magic of theater, it somehow works out. And this is um, something that God will bless us with because it's important. And we're we're bringing something to Hawaii that, as we talked about earlier, a lot of people don't know about, and it's beautiful. And there, it's beautiful. And there's a lot. He has a lot. There's a lot of work of of, of his work and. We're just doing our best to, to, to meet the deadline. That's where we're at. Okay. Yeah. But if I could jump in here, this is not just a poetry reading. This will be, uh, there will be some poetry, rec- uh, poetry recitation for sure, but there will also be short stories played out by costumed actors playing the parts. So, right. yeah, um, and also a narration of Dunbar's life with visual effects and so forth. So, 
hopefully it'll be quite complex and entertaining and not just poetry reading. And Derek, so talk about his contribution uh, to literature in this country. Certainly, I feel that he, he, he does his best to verbalize the African-American experience. Struggle, anger, happiness. I think he, co- he covers all the ranges of emotion as well as talk about the history, our history here in this country. You know, in the beginning of his career in eighteen eight early 1890s, this was post-Reconstruction, so there were no black poets of fame reaching into the general population at that time. He was the first, and very important for that reason, because he brought a lot of people together and exposed them to the dialect and also and the struggle. And his poems are all about life in the Reconstruction era because he was too young to have his own life experiences when he started writing, so he was he was repeating those of people he'd met and people he knew and family members and so forth. Both of his parents were slaves. His father had escaped, and his mother was freed, um, you know, at the end of the Civil War. So he was the first person of letters to come out and really explain the what life was like for African-Americans, especially in the North, and and some of the old slave days also, about what life was really like for them. So that's really educational, and that's black history. That's why we're doing it. And that was researcher Larry Bartley and producer Derek Brown of TAG, the actors group in Honolulu. The dramatized readings of works by Paul Lawrence Dunbar celebrates Black History Month and runs from January 21st to February 6th. We will have links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. In the year 1872 in Dayton, Ohio, was this great man conceived, and the nation found delectable what he had later achieved. For this man Dunbar would never be to posterity a mystery, for his work struck the nation with such great surprise that he would always be captured as great in the sight of this nation's eyes. But in the year 1906, from the killer of tuberculosis did he leave, and the heads of his community bowed, and the nation bereaved. have to go now, but tomorrow we plan a call-in show as we mark eight years since an estimated 27,000 gallons of fuel leaked at one of the massive underground tanks at Red Hill. What do you think about the latest developments this week? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You want to listen back to something you heard today? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.